you know, for years the police have sort of banged on about these guys basically bringing New Zealand's criminal underworld up to another level because of their, you know, counter-surveillance, the use of encrypted devices, uh, their international connections. Because these guys were communicating so freely on these devices for, you know, 18 months, blatantly saying what they were hoping to do, it's going to really paint a much broader picture of, as to how everyone's operating and how it's all connected. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Late on Monday night, the newsroom of the New Zealand Herald got a tip-off that there was a raid on the properties of known members of an organised biker gang, the Comancheros. Senior crime reporter Jared Savage started to ring around his contacts. He knew that the gang, who'd featured in his best-selling book Gangland, were the top targets of Kiwi police, but he'd no idea what was about to unfold, or that the powerful FBI was behind what would happen next. Today, from Europe to San Diego, to Australia and right into the heart of New Zealand's underworld, mobs are being dismantled after police across the globe working on Trojan Shield or Operation Ironside strike a killer punch to 300 criminal networks. Like Ireland, New Zealand was not a coalition partner on the historic sting, but Jared tells me about the ripple effects of the gangland tsunami in his country and how a Comanchero plot to purchase a catamaran and rendezvous at sea with a drug mothership was one of the many criminal enterprises which have come undone. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I was talking to Alan Foyer from the New York Times and he was explaining to me about how this whole thing started, how they had got a young kind of guy who's unidentified so far who was caught up in the Phantom Secure bust and they sort of turned him, flipped him to be an FBI um, informant. He was developing this phone technology so he continued doing that for them. But he then starts to integrate it into the criminal underworld, um, which I think is where your side of the world comes in. Yeah, well, from there, from how I understand it, they got got it into the hands of a guy called Hakan Ayik, who's a... um, He's not a gang member, but he's he's an Aussie crime figure. And... um, He's he fled Aussie a few years back and has been based in Turkey or, or the Mediterranean, you know, Cyprus around there. I, I think jumping around a wee bit, and um, yeah, he's quite tight with some of the guys that I can that I can talk about. So it's yeah, quite quite amazing, really. So he seems to be sort of criminal number one, um, a bit like the first guy who got COVID, is he? Yeah, he's, yeah, the only, yeah. Yeah. he's criminal. <laughs> He's criminal zero. So it sounds like they got the anom uh, encrypted device into his hands, and then he's he's one of these so-called influencers, I suppose, in, in the criminal world, where he starts spreading it by by word of mouth and say, "Hey guys, this is really good. It's got some great features that we can use." And yeah, it's a sort of spread 
spread across, uh, you know, um, this part of the world at least. He can he's sort of deemed to be um, responsible for that. And and one of the guys he's very close with is a is a Kiwi who had been living in Australia, a guy called Duax Nakuru, and uh, he had also left Australia about ten years ago, as living in the Mediterranean. He's a Comanchero. So, you know, last time we, we spoke, we talked about how the Comancheros had arrived here in New Zealand after Australia changed their deportation rules. We had a chapter, several chapters set up here now. And, um, but this guy, Duax, is, um, or Dax, as he's, as he's called, he, um, he, he's tied in with some of these guys, obviously, from their time in Australia. So, it's all sort of just unfolded from there. And, yeah, his name has cropped up in some charge sheets um, over here. So, obviously, he's still at large. But, um, the you know, the, the police the police case, is the prosecution case, is that he was basically in behind shipping in huge quantities of, of methamphetamine, cocaine, and MDMA into the country using his Comanchero links here, uh, as well as... Um, Sort of an alliance with with the Mongrel Mob, which is um, a, a very it's New Zealand's largest gang, um, and one of its chapters is alleged to have been working at, or so, sorry, one of some members from one of its chapters uh, who had been living in Australia with these guys, um, growing up together, and um, yeah, it's, that's how it's sort of all, all unfolded. And my understanding of it from our end is that our local uh, National Organised Crime Group, that's our specialist division looking at drugs and transnational crime and things like that. They were already having a look at these guys for about two or three, they were sort of under surveillance for about two or three years. And then it dovetailed with 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 the ANOM um, sting, basically. And, and so they, you know, we, we've, the New Zealand cops found out via our Australian Federal Police uh, friends that, hey, we've got some communications coming from the ANOM devices, which which you might be interested in. And, um, yes, it, it dovetailed in quite, quite nicely there. So how significant is it in both New Zealand and Australia, the kind of characters that have been swept up in the arrests and that? I can't speak to Australia too, too much, but because I don't know specific, you know, I don't know anything that's, that's not sort of public, but I mean, certainly from the media reaction over there, um, you know, it was front page on all the, you know, all the big um, newspapers and websites. And, you know, I mean, they ha- they actually had the Australian Prime Minister leading the press conference with the police, which is, I'd never seen something like that before. And, and some might say that's politicising a police, op- you know, police operation. But certainly they are very um, cock-a-hoop about it, in particular the, um, just because they play such a key role in it too, with between you know the ANOM, it was sort of I think the whole idea of this thing was dreamed up over a couple of years between some AFP officers and and, some, and their mates in the FBI. So they certainly see it as being quite a bit, quite a big deal. Um, and certainly here as well, um, obviously the, the the arrests and the sieges and things are, are quite. Quite a lot smaller, but you'd expect that because we're we're quite a lot smaller. Um, but the the caliber of the criminal of the alleged criminals here, uh, and which and they have name suppression here, unfortunately. But the characters that I've written about before, uh, you would almost call them untouchable. Um, so they are certainly what the police would allege to be sitting at the, at the top of the criminal tree here in New Zealand. Uh, we can say that they're members of the Comancheros and, and, uh, and the Waikato Mongrel Mob. 
Um, certainly of a younger, flashier breed. Um, these are the guys that um, they look great. Um, they've got beautiful wives and girlfriends and flash cars, and they don't look like your typical New Zealand gangster. And, um, you know, for years the police have sort of banged on about these guys having, these guys being a, a next-level criminal, you know, basically bringing New Zealand's criminal underworld up to another level because of their, you know, counter-surveillance, the use of encrypted devices, um, uh, their international connections, and, and of course, ironically, it's the um, it's the use and their trust in these encrypted devices which has led to their downfall. So it's been a big deal here. It's been big news. Um, people are reading it. Um, people are fascinated by it. And I, I just think the whole the whole idea of that long game played by the FBI and the AFP um, has really captured people's imaginations. So it's um, it's sort of like. Almost the stuff of movies, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. And I'll, I'll be surprised if someone's not already working on a manuscript right now to try, <laughs> to try and get that next Netflix series. Because, uh, you know, these stories are fascinating to, you know, as you know, they're fascinating to write and to learn about and they're fascinating to read too. And it gives people a glimpse into a world which most people have, you know, have no connection to or any idea about. And, um but also, you know, so it's entertaining, but it's also incredibly serious given the amount of drugs that we're, that we're talking about So, um, and the harm that they can do in our communities. So, yeah, there's, you know, it's been, it's been a big week. There's been lot, <laughs> lots of late nights calling people and ringing around and looking through documents. So it's been good fun. It's funny you should mention about the uh, Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. I think he's, he described this as a watershed moment in um, the fighting of organised crime. Did New Zealand wasn't one like ourselves, like Ireland wasn't one of the 16 um, collaborating nations, but uh, you'd think we should get a bit of a kickback in that England, our nearest neighbour and much bigger um, place for both population and criminals. They have been involved. Um, Did your news break through official press conferences or were you getting a trickle from Australia and you realised that New Zealand had also benefited from this? We um, we got, on, so it kind of all broke here in New Zealand time on the Monday morning, but on Sunday night, we someone rang in and said, oh, there's all these police cars um, around this address. And... Um, and we sort of put in a few phone calls to the police media team saying, oh, what's what's going on here? And they kind of said, oh, nothing. And we said, well, hang on, we can actually see the police cars. So, <laughs> so what's going on? And they said, oh, look, it's a, it's a national organised crime group operation in Auckland, Bay of Plenty, Waikato, uh, the central part of the North Island, and Wellington. So that's essentially the entire North Island Um and that message got relayed to me by my colleagues, and I was like, "Yeah, this this sounds pretty big." Um, I kind of had an inkling that, I mean, you know, it's, it's no secret that they would have been looking quite closely at the Comancheros. Um, we've had some New Zealand police have had some quite good success in that area in the last couple of years, but there's still a few outstanding guys in the Waikato chat that I thought, "Oh, it's probably." something along those lines to do with them. And then by the morning, when the morning came, obviously we were seeing the news coming out of Australia. We saw some news stories coming out of the BBC uh, and um, where else? 
those two, two, two mainly, and we saw the big stories from the eighth, you know, in Australia. We're like, this has to be connected because no one, like, none of my, none of my contacts were picking up the phone, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and like police national headquarters weren't asking official things either. So they basically just said, yeah, we're going to have a press conference at about eleven a.m. And that's where uh, Greg Williams, who's um, the head of the the NOCG here, the the National Organised Crime Group, he gave quite a quite a lengthy press conference. Uh, and outlining exactly how we fit it in, and um, you know he's cock a hoop too. I mean, I think he's been doing this a wee while, and um, certainly it's the biggest thing I can ever remember down here. Simply because of two factors, really. Well, uh, the two main factors are just the subversion of the encrypted technology is just what, in terms of that sort of sting or honeypot or whatever you want to call it. The fact that they'd sort of the FBI and the AFP had flipped the tables on everybody. As I mean, these guys use this encrypted technology freely. They trust it implicitly. They recommend it to one another. And for them to have been sucked in like that and then have the tables turned on them, not only does it lead to all these arrests, but I think it, it'll, it'll lead to a, a bit of a paranoia, I think, amongst um, amongst others that haven't maybe had that knock on the door yet um, or other groups that might have used a NOM, or even if they're not using a NOM, even if they're using something else, it's going to make them second guess and go, "Crikey, like, are we, you know, is are this are we are we getting played here too?" So, I mean, you know, these organised criminal groups are fluid. They'll they'll you know it'll disrupt their business for a wee while. But I mean, by no stretch is it, um, you know, it's not, it's not going to be the end. Of, it's not going to be the end of things. But I think the other thing too, which really kind of took things to the next level, is the international collaboration between all the different countries. Um, you know, for years, you know, New Zealand in particular were battling away at this end and doing a good job locking up this, you know, the cells or the, or the arm of these groups that have been operating here in New Zealand. But it was always quite difficult to get any um, sort of action at, at the other end, like where the, you know, where the drugs are, are coming from. And um, in recent years, there's been a lot of work behind the scenes sort of forging those relationships with, you know, with, with Australia, with uh, the United States. So we've got DEA agents based here now, um, Canada and, and the UK as well. So basically the Five Eyes partners, there's been a lot of work sort of behind the scenes to not just share intelligence like when it suits people, but actually from what I understand to be quite um, strong working relationships. And I think our inclusion in that sort of this week is sort of um, – uh, you know, it's, it's it's the dividend, it's the payoff for that investment in the last couple of years. So, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, and by its very nature, you know, transnational organised crime um, literally is operating across borders. Um, no one country can do it by itself in terms of, you know, tackling it. So it has to be a, it has to be a joint and coordinated approach. And we spoke before about New Zealand and indeed Australia. Um, it's attractive to the cartels because of the price of cocaine on the street, which is four times the price that it is here in Ireland. It's even attractive to Irish criminals to transport it across the world to try and sell um, with yourselves. 224 arrests, I think, in Australia and 35 with your with, in New Zealand? That's right. Um, 35 and I, um, I've heard there's probably another 20 to go here. So we could end up with 50 to 60 people locked up. Um, and you're absolutely right. The, the prices of the drugs here in Australia and New Zealand, uh, uh, you know, I think it was actually a recent UN report the other day uh, backing up exactly what you've just said. Um, 
very attractive to the to the cartels, and, uh, and that's a relatively recent thing for us here, probably in the last four or five years. Um, meth and cocaine coming from from um, Mexico and South America, but we also have a huge pipeline coming in from that sort of golden triangle in um, in, in Southeast Asia as well. So uh, we're getting it from both sides of the world there, and. Um, you know, and, and in fact, one of one of the one of the alleged plots and and um, at our end was um, the police were following these these this group links to the to the Comancheros, and what they'd done was they'd bought like a vessel, like a smallish vessel, but a, a, a seaworthy vessel to go out beyond our coasts to meet the mothership out in the in the middle of the um, Pacific Ocean, and then um, and then. You know, bring it, bring it back in, and the conspiracy was around a large amount of methamphetamine, which was to stay in New Zealand, but also a large amount of cocaine. Some of which was to stay in New Zealand, but some of which was to be freight forwarded to Australia, basically, because you know New Zealand's not seen as a suspicious sort of country, really, from which you know exports to come from. So that was that was the plot there, and I guess they sort of see New Zealand and Australia as, as a two for one sort of deal because we're so. Close in proximity to one to one another, and uh, you know the economy f- flows freely um, between you know bet- across the, the Tasman Sea between us. So it's um, you know definitely we are yeah. It seems cr- it might seem crazy to your listeners, but yeah, New Zealand is a small market, but a very lucrative one because of the the huge profits that have been made, and clearly seen as a backdoor into Australia now as well. Um, so were they all Comancheros and biker gangs that were arrested or were there other criminal gangs? No, I think I think there's about, I mean, often within these groups, there are also, you know, associates and hangers-on. So I think in terms of there were, there's at least three senior members of the, um, of the Waikato mongrel mob, all, all younger guys, I hasten to add, who have strong friendships with guys in the Comancheros. So, in fact, some of the Comancheros, um, you know, had actually patched over from from the mongrel mob, which is kind of, you know, un, uh, not unheard of, but very rare in the criminal underworld here. You know, once you join a gang, like, that's normally it. You know, you're in there, you're blood brothers. So for them to have patched over was a bit of a slap in the face, and yet they seemed to have maintained this these friendships at least and, and this alleged alliance to you know to conspire to, to bring drugs in so i'm not sure of the actual exact numbers of of members that have been arrested but um even if you know it's not a huge number but it's yeah their 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 influence and their seniority and, and where they sit in the pecking order puts them at the top of the tree and criminal zero hakan ayak um the australian He's obviously of Turkish origin, and from what I've read, he seems to be based there for the last 10 years after he was suspected of being involved in a plot to import heroin into Australia. Um, is it unusual that he's actually been named by a senior officer? Because he seems to have been called out. I, I notice in the reports coming from there, it's like, oh, you should hand yourself up because... You, you could be killed, almost kind of feel, is, you know, is he the only one that has been called out? Well, uh, from in terms of the Australian media, that's, that's the only, um, that's the only name I've seen being, being called out. Um, I mean, yeah, quite incredible comments coming from their police commissioner around that, almost a taunting, really, or a, um, 
uh, sort of a, you know, because I think he's been a thorn on their side for for a long time. Um, there's been some, I saw some quite recent investigative reports from over there, how uh, like literally a couple of days before this all happened, which leads me to believe they probably knew it was coming, but stories about Hakan, where he was, and sort of other figures in this so-called Aussie cartel of eight or nine sort of leading leading crims based largely based overseas. So, um, you know, so he's the main one that I've seen like, deliberately singled out. And I think they're probably delighting a little bit in the fact that, you know, he's the guy that, you know, that they targeted with, with their NOM device. Um, I think, and, and then he's, he's literally done their job for them to set, to set up, to set up his own mates, you know? So it's, um, he, yeah, I, I guess as well, because he's in Turkey, it's probably a little bit harder. It's harder for the Australians to, to get to him. I don't think they have an extradition treaty with them. So I guess by naming him publicly and putting that pressure on him, that's sort of, you know, putting him in the spotlight and, and probably making it harder for him to to move around. So, you know, the net's tightening, I suppose. Um, and and similarly with his good friend Dax Nakura, like, He's he's named in these charging documents that um, we have in our in our courts here. So when someone's first appeared, it has their name, address, and the particulars of what the what, of the offence they've been charged with. And um, like he's he's named in like he's not named in, individually in his own sheets, but and within the conspiracy charges, he's I saw, you know I literally just saw his name pop up in there, and just by dint of just knowing who he was, they made quite a good story for us to say that, you know, here he is um, overseas as the off. He wasn't named by our, by our police, that he was just uh, sort of uh, referred to as an offshore, an offshore-based identity. But by going through the charge sheets, we could work out that it was him. And obviously those relationships that he had with, with these other guys here on the ground in New Zealand. And there's another guy as well, um, uh, who he's not in New Zealand. He's living. He's living in Thailand actually. But he's been named by the FBI, and that they, the United States is great. They just put all their all their court documents uh, out online for, for everyone to have a look at. And I was just going, yeah. I was just going through those, and um, another name came up, Shane Nakudu, and he was basically um, he was named alongside Hakan Ayik as one of these distributors of Anom. So one of ten or maybe twelve around the world, and here's this New Zealander. Living in there, um, I actually think he's a, a relative of um, of Duax Nakuru. So he's he's one of these distributors, one of twelve or ten or twelve people named by the FBI and charged with their racketing um, legislation, in which he's been alleged to be, you know, distributing the Anom devices, um, taking the the six monthly subscription fees, providing technical advice. Um, he could remotely delete. Or reset um, the devices. Uh, you know, if someone he's living in Thailand and they're living somewhere else, he can he can sort of give them that sort of tech support. So he's you know, and uh, and you know, the FBI would say, well, you're facilitating um, the movements of you know of drugs and you know alleged assassination plots around the world by providing that advice and that support and, and that device. So um, we're gonna we're gonna charge you. So you know, he's in Thailand. Um, as a fugitive, uh, and he's facing a, a lot of charges back here too, as part of that same conspiracy um, with the Comancheros here. So it'll be a question of who gets him first, be it the FBI or the New Zealand police, to put him before the courts. Is he somebody who would be a thorn in the side of New Zealanders? 
Well, I I had never heard of his name being ever mentioned before or cropping up, but given what he's been charged with uh, and where it seems he fits in the hierarchy, um, it seems he's, he's right up there as a trusted lieutenant of, of Duak's Nakuru uh, and clearly a key part of, you know, uh, allowing these guys to to talk on, to communicate on these encrypted devices. So I think we'll be hearing a lot more about him. Um, I counted up the charge sheets with his name in it. Um, there was 60-odd charges of very serious, you know, um, I mean, importing every drug under the sun, essentially. So um, MDMA, cocaine, methamphetamine, and then as well as a lot of conspiracy charges as well. So that's obviously where the there's evidence, well, alleged to be evidence of them talking about it or arranging it, but the deal never happening for whatever reason. Um, so, yeah, I think we'll hear a lot more about him. And it'll be very interesting, too, once the name suppression falls off some of these characters here. It's just, to, I mean, it's kind of, uh, it's very frustrating as a journalist to have these suppressions in place, but it is kind of common at first appearance for people to get name suppression, give them a couple of weeks' breathing space to tell friends and family or whatever, and then... Um, and, and then we have a proper argument as to why suppressions should be lifted. But um, it'll be very interesting when that when that gets lifted and we can sort of f- explore more fully the relationships between these characters because um, there's a really good story to be told there. It seems to me that just like the, um, the members of law enforcement who would say that this was a window into the underworld and they were shocked by what they saw, it seems the likes of you and I know very little about what's going on really either. We just know bits, don't we? Yeah, he's always, you're always just scratching the surface really or getting half of the story or part of the story and it gives you an inkling as to what's going on. But um, I think when, you know, when we start to see these communications in full, um, it's going to paint a very interesting picture for us, not just for us as journalists or the public, but I think for the police as well. I mean, they're often often only operating on, you know, half the picture and making some pretty, you know, good guesstimates really as to, as to what's going on. But because these guys were communicating so freely on these devices for, you know, 18 months, they, they, they doesn't sound like they were using code, talking in code at all. They were just sort of blatantly saying what they were hoping to do. So, you know, so that's going to be giving, and not just in terms of the arrests today, but also this week, sorry, um, but just filling out that intelligence picture of well, who knows who and who's, you know, who knows what and who can source this and who can source that. It might not have led to charges this week, um, but it's going to really paint a much broader picture of as to how everyone's operating and how it's all connected. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to to learning a bit more about that too. It seems to be, Jared, you've had a, a few busy days, but you probably have a few busy years nearly ahead of you with all that's going to come. Yeah, it'll die down a little bit until the next lot of arrests and court appearances. And then the way our system works is that a lot of the, a lot of the evidence is essentially locked away until trial, which could be anywhere from two to three years away. So, you know, for me, it's a matter of just essentially making a big spreadsheet of all these guys and following and following them through. Um, Some are going to plead guilty and and then, you know, we'll get some evidence coming out around that and what they did. And, you know, eventually we'll be able to tell the the full story, which will be quite exciting. Well, Jared Savage, thanks for taking the time to, to talk to us here today. Pleasure as always.
from sundayworld.com. This is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent. <laughs>